0: Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Honor your word, we pray, Lord. Uh, Lord, uh, cause our hearts to be changed and transformed as we behold the glory of of your son through the preaching of your word. Let none of us leave uh, the same, Lord, uh, but be exalted in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's one of the things we all hate, but we often model. Ingratitude. In gratitude, when you set a meal before your children or purchase a gift for them, you expect them to tell you thank you. When you track somebody down at the airport or at a restaurant and you return an item they dropped long ago and you didn't to catch up with them and give them that thing, you are anticipating an overflowing expression of appreciation. When you let off the gas just briefly and let someone over you, uh, over in front of you on the road. You wait a long time for that hand to go up in the rearview mirror, (laughs) signaling their immense gratitude for your amazing selfless act of service. And you quietly seethe with anger when they drive on without waving, as if that was your duty to let them over. Ingratitude eats away at us. And yet we're often just as guilty as others of practicing it. We go through much of life grumbling rather than giving thanks. But as we'll see this afternoon and looking at Jonah chapter 2, all of us in Christ have a reason to give thanks to God for his mercy. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jonah. Famous book, maybe one of the, the most famous prophet, prophetic books. And this afternoon we'll look at Jonah chapter 2. All right, so turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, and this morning we'll look at, oh, this afternoon we'll look at Jonah chapter 2. We read, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have owed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish that vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is what I think is the main idea of Jonah chapter 2, the main idea of this sermon. When God saves, we ought to give him praise. Very basic. When God saves, we ought to give him praise. We'll see that principle play out in the life of Jonah as we walk through this passage. And as we go through this passage, we're going to look carefully at four things. So four points to the sermon. Number one, the setting. The setting. We'll look look at that in kind of the last verse of chapter 1, verse 17 and into chapter 2 verse 1. So number 1, the setting. Number 2, the action. We see that in kind of the second half of verse 1. Number 3, the attitude. We'll see that in verses 2 through 9. And lastly, number 4, the response. So number 1, the setting. Number 2, the action. Number 3, the attitude. Number 4, the response. First, the setting. the setting is important whenever we read scriptures. Where a story takes place often provides critical information that helps us better understand the meaning and implications of a text. Just think of some of the the more well-known settings in the Bible and and how they color the details of the story. I mean, Genesis, perfect garden in Eden. Exodus' oppressive regime in Egypt. Luke's crowded manger in Bethlehem in which the Savior was born. Matthew's bloody Golgotha, where the Savior was crucified and died. John's empty tomb, where it was discovered that the Savior was once again alive. Settings matter. And here we see perhaps the most unique setting in all of Scripture. Jonah finds himself in the stomach of a fish. It reminds us of what happened in the last verse of the previous chapter. In chapter 1, verse 17, after being cast overboard by the sailors because Jonah had refused to follow God's wishes, and he went on this boat uh, going the opposite direction of where God wants him. Jonah boarded the boat, and he's been cast overboard by the sailors because of a rising storm. And we read there in verse 17 of chapter 1, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. For Jonah and the sailors, when his body tipped over the edge of the boat, there was only one outcome that was expected, death. But God had other plans. Maybe God appointed a fish. It just shows God's sovereignty over all things. I mean, he is sovereign over the nations like Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh, where he Sent Jonah to preach judgment upon it. He's sovereign over nature. God sent the storm that rose up upon the sea to stop Jonah from fleeing. And he's sovereign over animals. He sends this large fish to swallow up Jonah. And he kept Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, it's at this point that that some people, maybe most people, check out. I mean, maybe you yourself are tempted to check out here. You you hold on to the Bible being a true and reliable book. But some things like this here are just too unbelievable, too unrealistic. I mean, some of y'all have been to college. You got a degree. Some of y'all might have two degrees. And you just know that anybody with the brain, anyone with any amount of intelligence would would sniff out that this cannot happen. Can't nobody live inside the stomach of a fish. I mean, who's ever heard of such a thing? Besides, we need to be careful of coming to the Bible with our preconceived conceptions of what can and cannot happen. Of what God can and cannot do. Maybe you hear this afternoon and you're questioning Christianity. Not outwardly, I mean, you're a good Christian, but perhaps inwardly. And it's stories like this that cause you some questioning. I mean, the whole thing seems rather fairy Maybe you think it's too un- unintellectual or too unscientific. I mean, let's face it, for someone to be swallowed up by a fish kept in its belly for three days and survive would be a miracle, And with your scientific mind, analytical mind, informed and persuaded only by what you can observably see, what can demonstrably be proven, you've long ago abandoned the concept of anything being miraculous. Maybe it's not your scientific or analytical mind that causes you to reject miracles. Maybe it's your your lived experiences. I mean, you used to believe this stuff supernatural, the miraculous happening. But you've prayed for sick parents or sick children to be healed of their diseases. And it hasn't happened. You've labored long to see lost people around you get saved and they're still lost. You've been waiting a long time for your spouse to change his or her ways and the problems in your marriage still remain. I mean, you've needed miracles to happen in your life, and you seemingly haven't seen one yet. And so you doubt that there are any. Perhaps it's colored the way you think about everything, from the creation of the world to the creation of a human being to the way you read stories like this. But I wonder, have, have your predetermined commitments against the supernatural given you a skewed view? Friends, We need to approach the Bible seeking to understand it on its own terms, seeking to read the scriptures on its own terms instead of our terms. I mean, in an age where where people are frequently deconstructing their faith, we need to have a category for us being wrong, our perceptions being wrong, and the Bible, all of it being true. I mean, that's how the author of this book presents this story, not as a fable or as a fairy tale or as fiction, but as facts. I mean, just notice the the rather matter-of-fact way that it's reported. I mean, there's no grand, vivid descriptions of the fish. You get all that stuff from, like, children's books or movies, right? There's no even kind of grand details of what happened inside the fish. That's for Hollywood. The fish... As much as we talk about Jonah and the fish or Jonah and the whale, and never his whale, right? the fish is only mentioned twice in the whole book, chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 1. And then only briefly, uh, the author presents this account not as some fantastical detail, but as a factual detail included to progress, to move along the narrative of the story. All right, that's not to discount that there was a miracle that happened, but it's to introduce and implant in our minds as readers a category of miracle as fact. Yes, miracles really do happen. And the way the author here presents it is meant to kind of cement it, not as something that we need to be uh, doubting, but something that's, that's true, that's factual. I mean, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 affirms the, the historicity, the, the actuality of this account. So much so that he ties Jonah's stay in the belly of this fish with his stay in the grave. Right? He tells people just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly or the heart of the earth. Here we find Jonah in the belly of a fish. It's no doubt a surprising setting, not just for us today, but for Jonah then. He certainly didn't intend to be there. And for all intents and purposes, he thought that he would not be there. He thought that when he left that boat, he'd be dead. But Jonah finds himself alive. And what does he do? Well, that leads to point number two, the action. The setting is in the belly of a fish. Jonah's been saved. And that leads to number two, the action. Jonah does something. We haven't seen him do the entire story. If you read through Jonah chapter one and into verse two, he, he prays. The beginning of verse 1 tells us, then Jonah prayed. He'd heard from God. In chapter 1, verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He'd received God's word. He heard from God. He even talked about God. In chapter 1, verse 14, he testifies that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. But he had not talked to God. I mean, others who who didn't know the true Lord, the the sailors, they testified about God. But Jonah did not talk to the Lord. How stubborn our hearts can be to to cry out to God. I mean, not even the prospect of death, as Jonah left the, 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 the ship and jumped into the water, not even the prospect of death could pry the prophet's lips open to pray. He didn't pray from the belly of the ship when he was underneath and and, and all the kind of storms were raging around him. But he does finally pray from the belly of a fish. And that Jonah prays from the belly of, of a fish shows us that there's no ideal setting that's needed to pray. You may not have a prayer closet. You may not have a single quiet place in your house. If you have children, you probably do not. Your kids or your neighbors may keep the noise level at 100 all the time. Well, praise God that you don't need a perfect place or a perfect setting to pray. All you need is a prepared heart, a heart willing to pray, a heart determined to pray. Every time is a perfect time to pray, in the mornings and at nights. At meals and in the middle of conversations, you know, when people say something crazy to you or you evangelize out in the neighborhood and they say something like way off the wall, you can do a little silent prayer right there. Lord, help me right now. Right. Every time is a perfect time to play at meals and middle of conversations. Every place is a perfect place to pray inside the church and in your car. On the treadmill, in the shower. Yes, even in the bathroom. I mean Paul and Silas used a prison cell to hold a prayer service. Jesus used a wooden cross to call out to God. At all times and in all places we can and we should pray. Jonah had had pushed aside the urges to pray until now. Maybe that characterizes you. And you plan to pray? You feel convicted to pray? You have opportunities to pray, but you don't pray. Why not? Are you angry with God? Disappointed with him? Has your heart grown cold cold towards the Lord? Maybe the Holy Spirit is using this message right now to draw you back to God, to communicating with him. Maybe the main application for this sermon for you is simply this, pray to God talk to Him. The God of all the universe has given you unlimited access to Himself. Maybe you're wondering, well, what am I supposed to say? What could I possibly talk to God about? Well, let Jonah's example here be a model to you. Look at his attitude as he approaches God. Point number three, the attitude. Number one, the setting. Number two, the action. Number three, the attitude. Jonah is thankful. We see that in verses 2 through 9, which show the content of Jonah's prayer, which kind of reads like a psalm. It feels like you're reading one of the psalms if you read verses 2 through 9. This is something of Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving. You see him there explicitly mention that in in, in verse 9 as he speaks of sacrifices to God with the voice of thanksgiving. So in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays, giving thanks. And why? Because God has saved him. You know, for a number of years, probably due to to speed reading, reading too quickly and, and not paying close attention, I assume that this prayer here was a prayer of petition. That is, that it was Jonah asking to be delivered from the belly of the fish, that the fish is representative of God's judgment, and Jonah was asking to be rescued. But if you read closely, that's not the case at all, is it? The fish is God's means of refuge from God's means of judgment, from the waters. The the, the fish came to save Jonah from what would have killed him, the waters. We see Jonah beginning to pray, talking about distress, but it being a prior distress, not a present trouble. It's not that the fish is what's causing him the, the danger. It's that the waters were the danger. The waters were the distress. And he's praying, giving the praise for being delivered from this prior distress. That's the reason for this present prayer. We I mean, notice all the, the past tense language in verse 2. I called out to the Lord. Past tense. Out of my distress, he answered me. Past tense. He heard me. Past tense. This isn't a prayer of petition. This is a prayer of thanks to God for answering a prayer of petition. And Jonah says he cried out to the Lord from the belly of, of Sheol, the, the place of death which, again, the sea waters represented to Jonah. But in the waters, sometimes between chapters 1 and 2, between being thrown into the sea and being swallowed by the fish, Jonah pled to God to save him, to rescue him. And his presence now in the belly of the fish is proof that God answers prayers. Now, we can almost be certain that Jonah's prayer wasn't, Lord, if it be thy will that thou would grant thy servant in the multitude of thy mercies and the tenderness of thine heart to be delivered from these devastating and disastrous waters. I once again mayest worship and serve thee in truth and in honor and total fidelity for thy namesake and thy namesake alone and for thy eternal glory. Amen. Now, that's a fine prayer to pray in peacetime. But the man said he was in distress, in in trouble, and and troubles have a way of truncating our prayers, don't they? Lord, help me. Save me. David, in Psalm chapter 69, verse 1, cries out, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. And in Matthew chapter 14, when Peter stepped out of the boat to walk on the waters but began to sink, he simply cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Perhaps it's where you are today. The the weight of responsibilities are like rising waters and you feel like you are about to drown. Between being a, a good spouse and a good parent and a faithful church member and meeting up with folks and sharing the gospel and making decisions about your children's school and a bunch of other future plans, your head and your heart are full And the only words you can possibly conjure up are, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. But that's okay. You don't need to worry about praying simple prayers like that. Jesus instructed his disciples, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that because of the size of their words that their prayers will be heard. It's not the size or sophistication of our prayers that catches God's ears. Jonah's prayers probably weren't very sophisticated. And I doubt his prayer was very specific either. I doubt Jonah prayed, Lord, send a very large fish here in the waters to swallow me up out of the sea to rescue me. But God often answers prayers in unexpected ways, doesn't he? I wonder if you've noticed that. Maybe you've prayed for patience and the Lord gives you a strong-willed child. Maybe you've prayed for deeper faith and God sends you severe trials. Perhaps you've prayed for friendships and find yourself sitting next to a stranger on the metro. Someone that you could get to know really well as a good friend. I wonder have we missed God's means of answering our prayers and in doing so missed the opportunity to thank him for his faithfulness. You know, I think one of Satan's greatest tools is forgetfulness, tempting us to forget all the wonderful things the Lord has done and to focus our eyes, focus our minds on the things the Lord hadn't done. And you prayed for children and you don't have any. You prayed for a spouse, and you still don't have one. You prayed for a better job, and you're still in the same position. You prayed for an abundance of conversions, and you sharing the gospel like crazy, but you ain't seen many folks get saved. Perhaps you look around at your life and figure God must not hear you, must not respond to your prayers. That's not what Jonah thought, though. He's washed up by the waves of the sea, not upon the shore where where, where normal people would pray to be saved. Right. But he's washed up into the mouth of a fish and down into the belly of the fish. Which must have been quite disgusting. I mean, just think of what else was down there. All of the other specimens that this large fish had eaten, squids and seals and algae and seaweed and sitting down in there digesting for days. I mean, large amounts of gastric acids would have been filling the stomach preparing it for digestion. The sights and the smells of this fish's inside would have smelled like that water treatment plant on 295 and worse. And yet... Jonah doesn't look around and say, Lord, did you not hear me? I asked to be saved. What's this? No, he looks around the the intestines of this large mammal, and he exclaims, the Lord heard my voice. The Lord answered my pleas for deliverance. Saints, you may not be where you want to be, but praise God that you are not where you should be. Jonah should have been in the depths of the sea still, but he finds himself in the depths of a fish, safe and secure. You and I should have been and should be right now in the depths of hell. We've, like Jonah, rebelled against our good and holy God, and we've earned his just wrath, and we deserve the full punishment of our rebellion. Eternal death. God rescues us. God saves us when we call out to him. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Friends, God is still doing that, saving us when we call out to him. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it's no longer through the belly of a fish, but through the blood of his son. God appointed Jesus Christ to save us by giving his life for us, shedding his blood in our place. Jesus died as our substitute for our sins so that we might be saved. He lived the perfect, righteous life to God that you and I should have lived. And then he laid down his life and picked up a cross and died the death we deserve to die. But Jesus did not stay dead. He raised up from the grave after three days, showing that his death was sufficient payment for all our sins and calling all of us now to turn from our sins and put our trust in him alone. And when we call upon him as our only and all sufficient savior, he saves us. If you've never done that before, today is the day of salvation. Call upon the Lord this afternoon and be saved. I, might, I know that might sound silly in, in a room of, of believers in a church service on a Sunday afternoon. But the devil dwells on the avenue of assumption. He loves we all gathered here this afternoon, just assuming that we're all Christians. Assuming that we've all accepted Jesus Christ at some point and are still clinging to him or still offering him to others. But so as not to assume. I want to be clear. If you don't think you're a Christian, if you are struggling right now, if you at some point professed faith in Christ, but right now are running on fumes, are stuck in some kind of sin, secret sin, and don't see or know a way out. Let me point you once again to, to the God who saves, who has provided a Savior in his Son for you. He loved you, and he gave himself for you. And so today, turn to him that so you might be saved. If you do know him, that that's what you're, you're living for. That's why you're telling your neighbors and telling your coworkers and unbelieving family to trust in him, to save him, to call out to God for salvation. Jonah called to the Lord, and the Lord answered him. And notice why Jonah called out to the Lord. Because he knew that God was the one in control. In verse 3, he says, it was you who cast me into the deep. It was you who put me into the heart of the seas. I mean, maybe Jonah's mind has been messed up, because in chapter 1, we read that the sailors are the one who, who put Jonah into the sea. But Jonah suggests that they only did what God predetermined to do. They were God's agents carrying out God's plan. God's plan was to put his prophet through severe discipline, even near death. Now, many in our day will say that God wouldn't do that. They try to correct Jonah's theology here. God wouldn't judge you. God wouldn't send anything bad your way. God is a God of love. That's true. God is a God of love. But friends, we can't prioritize God's attributes based on our preferences. God is not made up of parts. He's not 97% love, 2% holiness, and only 1% justice. No, God is all his attributes all the time. And he acts out of his attributes all the time. His love is a holy love. His love is a just love. If you try to elevate one of God's perfections above the others or try to extract one of God's actions like doing only good, apart from any of the others, you actually miss one big category that the Bible presents as demonstrating that God really loves you. Because he does to you what he does to Jonah here in verse 3. He disciplines you. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 says that the Lord disciplines the one he loves So if your theology doesn't have any concept of a God who disciplines, then your theology actually cuts you you off from a God who loves. God loved Jonah so much that he disciplined him severely for his rebellion, but he did not destroy him. Destruction would have looked like being driven away from God permanently, allowing Jonah to leave him permanently, allowing Jonah to, to go to wherever he was running off to. That's not what God wants for us. God does not want us to be separated from him, which is the, the ultimate act of judgment, to be away from the Lord. Right, we, we need to be near the Lord. Jonah fled, but God stopped him. He pushed his head deep underwater long enough to go through this ordeal that Jonah knew that he needed God. Since God would do whatever he needs to, to draw us back to him to break our stubborn wheels that, that keep bucking against him. Jonah's downward descent into the sea led ultimately to his deliverance. God's purpose to discipline and disciplining is to restore. All right, if you ever have to go through church discipline as a church here at CHCC, that's not an act of hatred towards another brother or sister. It is an act of love, and it's meant to do what God's discipline is meaning to do here for Jonah, to restore him to himself. God pulls Jonah up. God has the power to judge and God has the power to save. And Jonah breaks out and prays that he's chosen, God has chosen to do the latter to, to save him than the former to judge him. So, I hope this verse encourages you to not stop praying. That spouse, or that child, or that parent, that Muslim friend or a black Hebrew, Hebrew-Israelite friend, Is not too far gone. Their life might be spiraling downward, just like Jonah's body was spiraling downward when he left that ship. They might be seeming to go towards destruction, but the Lord can bring them up. Jonah's life is proof that anyone who is stuck in the depths of the sea or sin can be delivered. Your life is proof of that. I mean, have you forgotten how you used to be? Josh, thank you for reading that testimony, brother. I, I don't forget, <laughs> I wasn't always a Christian. If you've gotten where you used to be, what you used to do, some of you, maybe not too long ago in your memories or in reality, used to, to not be a Christian but a heathen in your behavior. Some of you used to chase careers and money, perhaps. Others of you may have pursued pleasure at all costs. Some of you engaged in in shameful sexual acts. Some others might have been known as conniving or backstabbers or gossipers or drunkards. All of us were drifting away from the Lord. All of us were drowning in a sea of sin. But God, apart from any initiative or invitation from us, apart from, from any of our efforts, he brought us up. He saved us and brought us to himself. There's reason to give thanks this afternoon, beloved. I can say that confidently, not knowing exactly everything that's gone on in your lives. Are there trials? Certainly. Have there been unexpected trials, especially painful trials? Probably. Have people said and done some hurtful things to you? Have they stabbed you in your back? I don't doubt it. Have your own repeated sins added to a sense of sorrow? I'm sure of it. But has God been good to you? Without question. If you're having a hard time believing that, then maybe you need to do what Jonah does here. Recount the dangers that God has brought you through. Now you notice that while this prayer is one of praise and thanks to God, that Jonah spends the bulk of these first few verses describing the misery he was in, which was his own fault, and this reflection on where we were and where we are is often what the Lord uses to to move the needles of our hearts from grumbling to gratitude, from discontent to praise. And I think that's why we need a a clear doctrine of hell. We need to remember where we were headed, where we were in to remember what God has saved us from. Right? So that it moves our needle from, yeah, it it ain't all that I want life to be, but Lord, I am not there. I mean, you right now on a Sunday afternoon with no AC in this church <laughs> have joy. I mean, you used to not be able to find joy unless you had everything, every need met, every uh, desire met. Right? But here you are on a Sunday afternoon finding it joyful to gather with God's people and to worship the Lord. Praise God for that. That's God using every means to draw you to himself and to remind you that the sweetest thing that you have is him. The greatest gift that you receive is salvation from where you should be. The Lord is good, kind, merciful, and loving. Demonstrated that to us in his son, Jesus Christ. So that we might not long for or pay regard to anything else. All right, we, we trust that the Lord has committed us to himself and we give him thanks for. It. And notice in verses eight through nine, Jonah says, those who who pay regard to vain idols forsake their their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah here acknowledges that putting your faith, placing your trust in anyone or anything apart from God is foolish. You know that. He's trusted in other things before. You don't gain anything, but you lose everything. Namely, you forsake, you give up any hope of experiencing steadfast love. Jonah's been a recipient of that love. It's resulted in his salvation, something that no idol or anyone else could ever guarantee or produce. No matter how loud you cry out to other things to satisfy you, no matter how much you give to them, those idols, whether in the forms of carved images or ministry success, They don't satisfy you. Those platforms for greater influence or people's praises don't ultimately fill you up. You need more and more and more. They they might satisfy for a little while, for a season, but they can't give you what you desperately need. Salvation and everlasting hope and joy. And the salvation only comes from one place, from, from God. Through his ordeal on the ship, in the sea, and now in the fish, Jonah knows that more clearly now than ever. And he ends his prayer with a loud shout in verse nine. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is sovereign over nations. God is sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over animals in the sea. And God is sovereign even over salvation. No amount of works, no amount of human effort, effort, no human ingenuity, no human will has coerced God. God and God alone saves us. We cannot save ourselves, but God is not stingy with salvation. God freely gives this gift of salvation to whoever he pleases and whoever asks him for. That should fuel your efforts as you go through Congress Heights, as you go through Southeast and other places, as you go to work, as you go in different places tomorrow and during this week, uh, trusting that the Lord who gave you salvation is still extending that thing to everyone else, right? And we get the opportunity to be ambassadors of that. Jonah's experienced God's merciful act of saving him. And as a result, he does the only appropriate thing. He thanks God and sacrifices to God as an act of repentance and worship. Which leads to God's response. Number four, lastly, the response. Verse 10 says, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Everybody see that God works in, in stages, doesn't he? I May mean, he tests our heart at each stage. In chapter one, he told Jonah to go to Nineveh and said Jonah fled and lived apart from God. And God responded by throwing him into the sea. to see that his self-sufficiency wouldn't hold. Earlier in this passage, we read that Jonah realized he couldn't live apart from God, and so he called out to God to rescue him, and and God responded by sending a fish to swallow up Jonah. And God holds Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days to see what Jonah would do. Would he he sulk and Would he complain? Or would he trust in God? Jonah ends up thanking God for his salvation, which leads to God's final act of deliverance. God transports Jonah back to the dry ground out of the belly fish, and drops him off on the shore. Each phase of the way was reminding Jonah of his mercy, of God's mercy to save sinners. Each phase of this journey was, was God's uh, winning Jonah back to himself, showing Jonah his loyalty to his people and winning Jonah's gratitude and, and setting Jonah on his purpose. He still had a mission to accomplish. He was still to go to Nineveh this time to tell them about God's mercy a mercy that he knew from judgment firsthand. God's done the same thing in every phase of our lives, in every circumstance. He's refining our hearts and refocusing our eyes on his mercy and saving us and growing our gratitude to him for his mercy. You see, if we don't delight in what God has done for us, what do we have to give others? What are we calling others to do? Scholar D.A. Carson once said, that what people most learn is not what we teach them. What they most learn is what we're excited about. So what are you excited about? What do you have to exude thankfulness and praise about? What is your salvation? Your salvation from the hands of an angry God into the hands of a merciful and loving God. So see if in your next prayer, You can refrain from asking God for anything, but spend your time thanking God for everything. Like Jonah, we have a lot of material. We are rebels who've been redeemed, sinners who've been saved, and there's only one appropriate response. When God saves, we ought to give him praise. Let's do that now in prayer. Lord, we thank you for saving sinners like us. We thank you that your mercy has extended into our lives far more even than in the life of Jonah and a fish, Lord, from a storm. We thank you that you saved us from sin. Lord, we thank you that you've uh, transformed us from enemies to, to friends, uh, from people who hated you to people who love you. Lord, you've done all the work, and Lord, we give you thanks. We praise you. And Lord, we pray that you would fill our mouths and our hearts this week with more gratitude than grumbling, with more praise, Lord, uh, than complaining, and that out of the overflow of our hearts, we might tell others of a merciful God who loves to save sinners for his glory. Lord, we pray that you would use us for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.